if, uh, if you want to know who Steven Spielberg is, right? You're like, oh, what, what's Steven Spielberg all about? If you want to know who, what Steven Spielberg is all about, you've just got to watch Indiana Jones. If you want to know what Steven Spielberg is all about, you've got to watch Indiana Jones. If you want to know what Bob Dylan is all about, you've got to listen to the album Highway 61 Revisited. It's not his best album, but it's the most classic Dylan album. Um, if you want to know who Jane Austen is, you got to read Pride and Prejudice. If you want to know all about the United States of America, you have to read the Declaration of Independence. And if you want to know all about buried treasure, you look on the back of the Declaration of Independence, and Nick Cage will show you the way. But if you want to understand Christianity, you've just got to read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. The basic message of Christianity is explained so clearly and so succinctly in our passage today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let me read them for us this afternoon. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this week, uh, my dad actually, you know, we're on a big group text, my family, and he sent a YouTube video, it's a comedy sketch. And it opens up and there's this woman, she's talking kind of very seriously about her problems and what's plaguing her. And the camera pans out and you see that there is a nail sticking out of her forehead. And she says, you know, there's just all this pressure. I just feel so much pressure. Sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. In fact, I can just literally feel it in my head. Sometimes it aches so much. I just don't know what it is. And the guy she's sitting next to, I'm, I imagine it's her husband or a boyfriend or something. He's like, uh, well, there's a nail sticking out of your forehead. And she goes, Ah, you would do this. It's not about the nail. You always bring up the nail. I don't want to talk about the nail. I just wish you would listen. And uh, he's like, there's a nail in your head. Well, the Apostle Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And we don't want to talk about our sin. We dance around the issue. We talk about how we're unfulfilled, how we're incomplete, or how we're, you know, I'm just not self-aware enough. I need to work on myself. 
But basic Christian theology says we all have a problem. We have a nail sticking out of our head, and we can refuse to talk about it all we want, but it's still there, and that problem is called sin. Now, again, that's not a popular word, especially not in 21st century New York City culture. It's not a popular idea, the idea of sin. But if we take Jesus of Nazareth seriously at all, we have to talk about sin. Because we will never appreciate how good and great God is if we don't first understand how great our sin is. You see, we have to talk about sin. Sin is like Voldemort. You know what I mean? If we don't name it, we will remain under its power. So we have to talk about sin. And there are two questions that I think lie at the center of most of our doubts. When I talk to people that aren't Christians, even when I talk to Christians, and I hear you wrestling with doubts and questions about faith, there's essentially, if you could categorize all questions, they would basically be two questions. And the first one is, is sin really that bad? Like, am I really that bad? And is God really as good as you Christians say he is? And that opens up two themes this afternoon that are central to a basic understanding of Christianity. And both of these themes are addressed in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And it's the themes of sin and grace. Is sin really that bad? And is God's grace really that good? Those are the questions I want us to consider today. Let me read the first couple of verses again. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ooh, is it really that bad? That's pretty serious. This passage outlines three primary ways that we are all living under the power of sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that if we are living under the power of sin, we're actually not living. We're dead. There's a personal dimension of sin. There's the wor a worldly dimension of sin. And then there's a demonic dimension of sin. And Paul says that we're under the power of all three of those things. So there's the personal dimension of sin. He says, and you, not they, not people to the left or people to the right, or the people who drive pickup trucks, or the people who drive hybrids, or the, you know, not them. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So sin feels like a strong word, doesn't it? Death feels like a really strong word. And we want to recoil when somebody says, hey, you're a sinner. We're like, oh, come on now. Not that, you know, that's a strong word. It's in our minds, it's reserved for the worst of the worst. But Paul uses two words here that shows us what he means by sin. He uses the word trespasses, which is the Greek word parapatoma, and it means to go in the wrong direction. If you trespass on somebody's property, you're going the wrong direction. You should turn around and go the other direction. That's what trespassing is. It also kind of uh, gives the idea of slipping, to slip, to fall, to stumble, to deviate from course. And many of us, use we use this kind of language um, actually to avoid owning our mistakes, don't we? Oh, man, I, just, I don't know what happened. I just kind of took a wrong turn somewhere in life. I, I, sli I just slipped. I just stumbled. I lapsed. And we say we use these words because they feel soft to us. 
And we feel like if we use those words, it makes us less accountable for the things we do. Like we're somehow passive in the whole thing. Oh, I just slipped. But the truth is, we've all slipped. We've all stumbled. An, a flippant word here, an irresponsible decision there. And then to use the metaphor of trespassing, how many times have we overstepped our bounds into someone else's life and hurt someone? We trespassed. We are trespassers, all of us. Then he says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, this word sin is an archery term. So it means to miss the mark. And we all miss the mark all the time, don't we? Even by our own standards. Okay, let's, let's take God's standards out of it for a moment. Even by your own standards, you don't live up to the standards you've set for yourself. On a trivial level, we all miss the mark on our diets. I mean, it's hard to eat healthy three days in a row. You know what I mean? We miss the mark on our workout plans. You intended to go to the gym after work, but it didn't happen. We miss the mark on our New Year's resolutions. Like, we can't even keep the most trivial basic promises to ourselves. But on a more serious level, some of the things, think about this, some of the things that you hate most in other people, you're just as guilty of those things as well. Like, I hate it when people are rude to me in traffic, right? New York can, traffic can bring out the worst in anyone. And the things that make me just want to scream at the top of my lungs at the person in the lane in front of me, I'm guilty of the exact same thing that they've done many times over. And think about this. Some of the things you hate most about yourself, like, some of the things you're like, I don't know why I keep doing this. You keep doing it. It's like you can't help it. Oscar Wilde, the author, said, I can resist anything except temptation. And some of you guys feel that way. You're like, I can resist anything except temptation. See, we miss the mark by our own standards. But then if you bring God's standards into it, man, we fail miserably. Like, line up your life next to Jesus's. And there's no hiding it. You don't measure up. Trespassers and sinners, all of us. Francis Spufford, who is an English novelist, he refers to sin, I love this, as the human propensity to mess things up. He actually uses a stronger word than mess, but, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm holy and I never say anything that's off color. So he says sin is the human propensity to mess things up. He says we all have a tendency to break stuff in our lives. Moods, promises, relationships we care about, our own well-being, and even the well-being of others. And what Francis Spufford is saying is that if you look at your life and you're honest with yourself, you have on many occasions by your decisions and your desires just made it worse. Not only for you, but for others around you. That's what it means to be a sinner. But it's not just that we're sinners personally. It's not just that we do sinful things. It's that we are actually shaped by the sin of the world in ways we don't even see. He says, uh, Paul says in verse 2, you followed the course of this world. You see, we are shaped by the world in which we live. The movies you watch, the magazines you read, the accounts you follow on social media, the news you consume, the advertisements you walk past on your way to the office, 
all of those things have a power to shape and mold you into a certain type of person. And if you think they don't, you are naive, and those things are shaping you more than probably anybody else because you're just completely oblivious to it. Media, institutions, advertisements, entertainment, all of those things are teaching a narrative to you. They're writing a script for you. They tell you what's beautiful. They tell you what's ugly. They tell you how to fit in. They tell you what it means to be a failure. They tell you what it means to be a success. And then they punish you according to how you measure up. In other words, the world shapes you. So what happens is that many of the things in our culture that are actually contrary to the way of Jesus, we actually embrace thing, those things because we are shaped by the world we live in and we don't even realize it. So think for a moment about a man in 19th century America. Let's say South Carolina. He's been taught from birth that the white race is superior to other races, and therefore it was totally acceptable for him to own slaves. And he went through his entire life. No one ever challenged that idea. And he may not have even considered it in his own mind. And people will say, oh, he's just a product of his culture. But in the eyes of God, do you think that matters? product of his culture or not. He did something evil, and in the eyes of God, that doesn't get you off the hook, being a product of your culture. You don't get a pass for evil just because, it's the, because you're caught in some system of sin or injustice. If God is just and holy, you don't get to use that excuse. And so what happens is that many of us are completely guilty of evil that we are not even aware of. Because the world we live, on, live in has shaped us into its image. It's the air we breathe, and we don't even notice it. So the world can shape us. And so many of us, we're like guilty of sins we didn't even know. Our grandkids are going to tell us what they are. Now, the final dimension that Paul talks about of sin is that we live under a demonic power of sin. Otherwise, other places in the Scripture calls this the principalities and the powers. Uh, Paul says here, he says, you followed the prince of the power of the air. He's talking about Satan. And basic Christian theology teaches us that there are demonic forces that are opposed to the will of God in this world. And Satan and demons, and yes, I believe in Satan and demons. They will infiltrate, infiltrate our world and they will shape us and they will exploit us to try to carry out their purposes in the world. Paul says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air and we all once followed him carrying out evil desires. And you say, what? I have never followed Satan. I've never followed, I've never, you know, Satan worshiper, like we think of, you know, people, you know, doing all sorts of weird things in dark rooms and wearing black, you know what I mean? Like that's what we think about when we think, I've never followed Satan. No, but you've probably at some point in your life taken part in his schemes without even realizing it and furthered his evil and his schemes in the world. So take something like human trafficking and the sex trade. Everyone in this room, I hope, would say unequivocally not only that that is evil, but that it's satanic. I mean, can we agree on that? It's satanic. And you say, I would never participate in anything like that. Listen to me, men, if you're looking at pornography, you are participating in that evil. Supply and demand. Your demand is causing a supply 
that is causing women and girls to be exploited for all to see. You say, well, I didn't know it was... It doesn't matter if you knew. You're still culpable in the schemes of the enemy because you participated and he exploited you to do something evil in this world. Let's take something else like, um, like anorexia or bulimia and body image issues. That's something that we would all agree and we would all say is deeply harming little girls all over the world. Now listen to me very carefully here. I'm not saying that anorexia is demonic, that someone who has that disorder is doing something demonic. What I'm saying is that a culture that teaches little girls that they have to look like a 90-pound supermodel in order to be beautiful and acceptable and lovable, that's satanic. Satan is using us. You are being played. We are being played for evil forces in this world. It's oppressive, and we would all agree that it's oppressive, and yet we all fuel it unintentionally by the magazines we purchase, by the products we purchase, by the social media accounts we like, and the YouTube channels that we subscribe to, and the celebrities we celebrate, and even the little comments that we make to our daughters, God help us. We mean no harm. Yet we can perpetuate satanic schemes without even realizing it. And before a just and holy God, I believe we are culpable even for that sin. Paul says we are dead in sin. And we are deserving of the wrath of God. And you're like, oh, he's talking about sin, now he's talking about the wrath of God? Like, is that what this kind of church is? We hate to talk about the wrath of God. But you actually know deep down that if God is good and just, then he has to be wrathful. Because think about it, whenever there's some evil in the world, in our country, we demand that the wrath of the state come down as hard as possible on evildoers, don't we? When someone gets a light sentence for something heinous, you think we're like, oh man, I love the grace of our judicial system. No, we're outraged. And that's a righteous instinct. That's a righteous emotion to be outraged in moments like that. Because a state or an institution or an organization or a company that does not adequately discipline and punish evil in its midst is actually participating in evil itself. So God's love and his goodness demands his wrath. And Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Welcome to church. You are a sinner, and you are by nature a children of wrath. So sin, the question we ask is, is it really that bad? Oh yeah, it's far worse than you think. But God, could he really be as good as Christians say he is? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not after we cleaned ourselves up, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So 
Next question, grace. Is it really that good? You guys remember a few years ago when we studied the book of Exodus, some of you that were here? Um, probably one of the most fun sermon series I've ever got to teach. I had a blast teaching the book of Exodus. And, you know, we always think of the story of Exodus as God's faithfulness and his power to save the Israelites, the good guys. And he destroys the Egyptians, the bad guys. You know, we think of Charlton Heston. We think, we're like, it's, we, we think of it like a good guys versus bad guys story. But I noticed a few years ago when I was teaching through it um, that God's grace was actually extended to the Egyptians all throughout that book as well. Uh, God's grace was for the bad guys too. You see, remember, Pharaoh was uh, the ruler over the Egyptians, and he was an awful, awful, evil, evil, evil man. He ordered that every Israelite firstborn son be killed. Um, he enslaved and impressed an entire group of people, the people of Israel. And who do you think, so Pharaoh's evil, we all agree on that, but who do you think carried out Pharaoh's orders? The Egyptians. Uh, the people of Egypt. So you've got, the, you've got this whole culture of people, Egypt, Egypt, that they're personally guilty of sin. Many of, have done, many of them have done heinous things under the orders of Pharaoh. Uh, they're guilty of being shaped by their worldly environment. I mean, they've, they've been shaped by the world that they live in as Egyptians. And they were clearly working out the schemes of Satan in, at that time. So even the people who didn't physically oppress a slave during that time, they were complicit by simply not speaking out and not doing something about it while it was happening. Every single person in Egypt was guilty of horrific sins. And when the, and God sends plagues, because he's telling Pharaoh, he's like, let my people go so that, they, so that they can worship me. And Pharaoh's like, nope, not going to do that. Like, I want my slaves. And he says, okay. And think of God's grace here. God warns Pharaoh every single time about what's about to happen. About to send the first plague. About to send the second plague. About to send the third plague. And, and he, he expl- through Moses, God tells Pharaoh exactly what's going to happen to them. But Pharaoh never listened. And in fact, all throughout the book of Exodus, God gives Pharaoh all these chances to turn from his evil. And he even relents of his judgment and wrath multiple times. There's this kind of like pattern that happens where Pharaoh's like, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do it again. I'll let your people go. And then God stops his wrath. And Pharaoh's like, ha, psych, I was just kidding. And then God continues to be gracious to him, continues to be gracious to him. But then this really interesting thing happens right before the seventh plague, the hailstorm. So, I mean, you're in the middle of Egypt, and a hailstorm came. But God reveals not just to the Israelites how to save themselves, but also to the Egyptians. Go read Exodus chapter 7 through 10. God tells the Egyptians exactly what's about to happen. A hailstorm is about to come. The exact time of day it's going to happen. And he tells them exactly how they can be saved. He says, you guys have 24 hours. Go get your livestock, get your family. Everybody go inside, take shelter. And they don't listen to the God of the Israelites. Some of them actually do. Some of the Egyptians actually listen and they're saved by the grace of God. The Egyptians are. But the rest of them, they don't listen and then they, they, they get caught in a hailstorm. So the book of Exodus actually shows us that many Egyptians, bad guys, actually had faith in God's command and they were saved from the wrath of God that was coming on them. And when God tells Moses about the Passover, you know, the angel of death that passes over uh, all of Egypt, God tells Moses about the Passover. He says, you know, take the blood of a sacrificial lamb, spread it above the doorpost, and when the angel of death comes, death will pass over your household. 
You see, Exodus shows us that slavery is a horrific, horrific evil. And it shows us that God is good and that he is a God of justice and he will not let evil go on forever. He will pour out his entire wrath on evil. And what is his wrath? It's death. But even in his wrath, God gave a fair warning to the guilty and the innocent. He says, look, my judgment for this is death. But there's a loophole. And the loophole is an innocent lamb can die in your place. If you take cover under its blood, I will pour out my wrath on that innocent lamb, and that will satisfy my wrath. And if you take cover under that innocent lamb's blood, death will pass over you and you will live. And the Israelites, they believed what God told them. They put the blood over their door. Pharaoh and the Egyptians did not. And when God's judgment came upon Egypt, those who did not take cover under the blood of the lamb experienced the full weight of God's judgment the death of the firstborn. Here's what I want you to see. The Israelites were not saved because they were the good guys or because God's grace to them was somehow greater than his grace toward the Egyptians. The Israelites, they were saved by faith in God's word and in his grace. They were saved by grace through faith. People say, how are, Old Test how are people saved in the Old Testament? By grace through faith, exactly the same way we're saved in the New Testament. But God's grace was also extended to Egypt. The slaveholders, the oppressors, the evil. Even to Pharaoh himself, God offered his grace over and over and over again. And the Egyptians died because they did not take God at his word. They didn't have faith. And in this passage, our passage today, the Apostle Paul tells us that by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. You see, on the cross, Jesus is the Passover lamb. God's good and perfect wrath is poured out on the innocent Jesus. And God says that all who by faith trust Jesus' blood to cover their sins, they will be set free and they will be made alive. So are you guilty of the personal dimension of sin? Have you missed the mark? Have you slipped and stumbled? Yes. There's grace for you. Think about the thief on the cross. Jesus on the cross, he hung next to two sinners. One of them was a thief who was, according to the law at the time, was perfectly deserving of the death he was dying. And he turned over and he looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, he said, will you remember me when you go into your kingdom? A thief deserving of death. And in his last breath, Jesus offers grace to him and says, buddy, today you will be with me in paradise. Are you guilty of sin? Have you stolen have you trespassed? Have you missed the mark? You can be in paradise with Jesus if you take cover under the blood of the Lamb. You wonder, you say, what about the worldly dimension of sin, the satanic dimension of sin? Am I really taking part in all these schemes? Or are there things that I'm unknowingly doing that are perpetuating sin in the world? I mean, I can't even help it. I was born into this. I'm part of this system. How could I ever receive God's grace if this is me? Think about this. Jesus, while he was hanging on the cross... He spoke out to the very men who were executing him, the ones who were just following orders. While Jesus was being tried and his own people were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, they were just caught up in the frenzy of the culture of the world. And throughout it all, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, this grace 
This is grace, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Somebody should jump out of the seat right about now. Maybe I just hadn't done it with enough energy or something, but that's good news. Now, why did God do all this? He did it to show off his glory in the world through you. Verse 10, it says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship. We are the masterpiece of God the Creator. We are His craft. We are His artwork, the creation of God. We are the crown of His creation. You know, when you walk through an art gallery, which I love to do, and what you see on display in an art gallery is the skill and the glory of the artists. They've given us these gifts so that we can see their skill and we can be blessed by it and moved by it. God has created you, and not only has he created you, but he has saved you for a purpose, and that purpose is so that you can be a display of his grace to the world. So this week, um, I I spent a couple days in Phoenix, Arizona, with uh, some pastors from all around the country. We were kind of learning from each other, encouraging one another. Um, and we finished up on Wednesday at noon, and I had a red-eye flight at midnight. And so I was looking at my watch, and I said, okay, I've got like eight, nine hours, ten hours or so that uh, I can do something with this. And Phoenix, you know, it's all right. And I, I kind of wanted to get out of Phoenix, though. So I had my rental car, and I said, you know what? I'm going. I'm going to Flagstaff, Arizona. So I'm a big runner. I love to run. Flagstaff is considered to be one of the most beautiful places in America for runners. It's 7,000 feet of elevation, so you get the altitude training. So I'm super fit right now for one run in Flagstaff. But I drove from Phoenix, Arizona, which is the desert, and I drove to Flagstaff, Arizona, which is 7,000 feet above sea level. It's the mountains. And as I was driving from Phoenix, you know, you leave Phoenix, it's kind of like suburban sprawl meets the desert. But then you, as you, about 50 miles down the road, you hit Sedona, Arizona, and you see these red rock buttes as you're driving on the interstate. And you're just like trying, you're like trying to convince yourself, keep your eye on the road. You're like, I'm just, this is so beautiful. And you're like captivated by the beauty of God's creation. And then you keep climbing. It's like 2,000 feet elevation, 3,000 feet elevation. And then finally you get up in the mountains and then end up in Flagstaff, Arizona. Look at this. Like, look how happy I am. Like running those trails, those beautiful mountains. Like I was just taking it all in, the beauty of God's creation. It meant a mountain range and a red rock butte and even the even a cactus in the wilderness on a 130 degree day is beautiful. God's creation is so beautiful. But we are his masterpiece. Why? Because the mountains don't get to tell the story of God's grace. They've never sinned and had Jesus die for their sins. But we have. And that's what we display to the world. A story that's far more beautiful than mountain ranges and deserts and wilderness and all other things you can imagine. What we get to display to the world is that I was dead, but now I've been made alive through. So two questions we had today. Is sin really so bad? Yeah, it's far worse than you think. 
is grace really that good? Yeah, it's far better than you can imagine. It's amazing, actually. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see.